Looking at verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is, in his, that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word desiring to hear from you this morning. Please remove all distractions and speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit and your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, last week we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and we saw that because of who we are in Christ, we are exiles in the world in which we live. We are strangers in a foreign land. This world is not our home. We are citizens of heaven. And because of this, the world around us, the culture, is going to grow more and more hostile towards who we are and what we believe. But not only are we exiles, we are elect exiles. We have been chosen by God. We've been set apart by the Holy Spirit and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so last week we learned that the election of God strengthens believers who live in a hostile world. And in the section that we're going to be studying this morning, we will see that our living hope rooted in the resurrection of Christ brings joy in the midst of trials. 
One of the primary reasons that Peter wrote this letter was that his readers were going through various trials. And he also knew that eventually they were going to face even a more difficult type of suffering. He was commissioned by Jesus to feed his sheep. And Peter knew a part of that feeding was to prepare them to suffer well. Suffering will come. Suffering will come. That's the reality of the world in which we live. Our world is broken. We face financial hardships. We lose loved ones to cancer and other diseases. Sometimes parents have to bury their own children. Spouses can be unfaithful. We experience moments of depression, and we ourselves struggle with the sin in our own lives. And as Christians, we're going to face hostility from family members, from friends, from coworkers, from fellow students. And so how should we respond when that suffering comes? How should you respond to the suffering that you're currently facing? We often are overwhelmed and burdened to the point of despair when trials come into our lives. Sometimes we ask people to pray for us, which is what we should do. That's perfectly fine. But we often just ask for prayer and then go right back into sulking over the struggles that we're facing. And in these verses, Peter explains that Christians have a living hope to look to in difficult times. That should bring them joy in the midst of suffering. He reminds these suffering exiles of God's great mercy in salvation. Because of what Christ has done, believers can and should suffer well. And so I'm going to frame the message this morning in three sections. We will see that salvation brings hope in verses 3 through 5. We'll see that salvation brings joy in verses 6 through 9. And salvation brings privilege in verses 10 through 12. And the main point of my sermon this morning, what I would love for you to see in this text and to leave here remembering is this, that our living hope rooted in the resurrection of Christ brings joy in the midst of our trials. Our living hope rooted in the resurrection of Christ brings joy in the midst of our trials. Peter begins this letter with praise, by blessing God. Take a look at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter looks up. He looks up to God and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a tendency to look down when we're going through moments of suffering. Our typical reaction is to focus on our circumstances 
and be overwhelmed by them. But here Peter directs our gaze upwards towards the privileges and benefits that we have as God's people. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a hymn of praise. It's a doxology, like the one that we sang at the beginning of our service. Praise be to God. Peter reminds us that salvation didn't come because of who we are or what we have done. Our redemption is a gift of God's grace because of his great mercy. God is worthy of our praise because in his grace, in his mercy, he has saved us through the work of his son, Jesus, and has given us new life in Christ. Peter writes about this new life. Look, as we read on in verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God is to be praised because he's caused us to be born again. When Christians talk about being born again, we are referring to that change that happens when God's grace works in our hearts, where we go from spiritual death to spiritual life. This is called the doctrine of regeneration. The focus here is on God producing new life in us. And this is an act of God alone. No one can take credit for this. Just like no one can take credit for their own birth, right? When you were born, you had no say in it. You didn't, your parents didn't ask you permission for you to be born, right? You and I were born because of the will of our parents. They decided. The same is with our being born again. We don't cooperate with our heavenly father in our new birth. We were spiritually dead. We were unable to participate. Being born again is something that happens to us. Remember what Peter said in verses 1 and 2. We didn't choose God. God is the one who chose us. And in order to bring about faith, God had to regenerate us. Regeneration comes before our faith. The Spirit works in our lives, in our hearts, turning our hearts from stone to flesh. And then he gives us the gift of faith in order that we would believe. And Peter tells us that this happens because of God's great mercy. We don't deserve to be born again. We don't deserve new life. We all deserve judgment and wrath because our sin is great. Our sin is great. But our God is a God of great mercy, and he causes us to be born again. What a beautiful truth. We are physically born into a world that will someday perish. 
But when we are born again, we are born into a world in which there is hope for the future. We are born again to a living hope. Hope is an important theme in this letter. Believers have a living hope, not a dead hope, not a false hope, a living hope, a sure hope. And everything that we do is motivated by hope. When we go to school, when we go to work, when we order that thing on Amazon late at night, we hope that these things will make us happy. Unfortunately, when we place our hopes in the things of the world, there's always this level of uncertainty. When we say, I hope everything will turn out right, what we're really saying is, I'm not sure that it will, but I want it to. The hope that Christians have isn't wishful thinking, like, I hope we have dessert after dinner, or I hope my team wins the Super Bowl. The Christian's hope looks towards the future while in the present because it's anchored in the past. Our living hope is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross and he was buried in a grave. But he did not remain in that grave. We have resurrection hope. And Peter, the apostle Peter, was an eyewitness. Think about Peter's experience. Peter denied Jesus three times, and he watched him die on that cross. And when Jesus died, so did Peter's hope. So did Peter's hope. But on that Easter morning, when Jesus rose from the grave and Peter heard that the tomb was empty, what did he do? He ran to the tomb. And later on, Jesus appears before Peter. And Peter's hope was restored. So imagine Peter writing this letter to these elect exiles, remembering that living hope that came to him when he saw his resurrected Lord. What difference does the resurrection of Jesus make in your life currently? What difference does the resurrection of Jesus Christ make in your life currently? It's amazing that we don't talk about it as much as we should, because it's one of the foundations of our faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then we would still be in our sins. But because of Jesus' resurrection, we have hope of our own resurrection. There is hope beyond this world and the sufferings that we're going to face. And death does not have the last word for the Christian. Man. What a comfort. What a comfort to these elect exiles in which Peter was writing to, but what a comfort for us as well. The worst that persecution can do to us is kill us. 
but we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the grave, sealing our salvation and hope. Our living hope comes from a living and resurrected Christ. And because Jesus is alive, he's with us wherever we go and whatever we go through. Our hope is anchored in the past. Jesus rose. Our hope is anchored in the present because Jesus lives. And our hope is completed in the future because Jesus is coming. We have a living hope. All right, now look at verses four through five. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Along with our living hope, we are promised a future inheritance. Peter is using family language here. We are born again into God's family. And as sons and daughters of the Father, there's an inheritance coming our way. An inheritance is a gift based on relationship, not based on performance. And often in our culture, when an inheritance is mentioned, you know, we think of people getting property, family heirlooms, or money after a loved one passes away. But this word inheritance is buzzing with Old Testament meaning. The people of Israel were promised a land as their inheritance, the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, a land of plenty. But because of their rebellion, the land became defiled. And so God's people were placed in exile. And like Israel, Peter's readers are exiles, scattered in hostile lands. But because they're a part of the new covenant, having been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they are promised a better future inheritance. This inheritance is different. Peter describes this inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's unlike anything that we can experience in this broken world. Think about when you buy something brand new. It eventually wears out. It becomes irrelevant. It loses its value. It breaks. Peter describes this inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's imperishable. It cannot be lost, stolen, or ruined. It's undefiled. It's pure, and it's in perfect condition, and it won't be corrupted in any way. And it's unfading. It will never lose its value or change. This is our inheritance. Peter says that this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. God is protecting this future inheritance for those who believe in him. 
and there's no possibility in which a believer will not be able to enjoy this inheritance. Because not only is this inheritance kept by God, but we're kept by God. Do you see that in the text? Who by God's power, we, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God is keeping us for this inheritance. This is another doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. God will preserve his people till the end. So no matter how difficult life may become, God will sustain us in his power, his power. God will guard our faith in order that no trial or difficulty will cause us to lose it. The God who gave us saving faith will also sustain our faith through suffering so that in the end we will receive our imperishable, our undefiled and unfading inheritance. This is a promise Peter's readers needed to hear and it's something that we need to hear as we will face more and more hostility in the days ahead. God will guard your faith by his power so that you will enjoy all that he has for you. So that you'll enjoy him. What a comfort to those who look at the losses of this world. As we look to the trials and our sufferings, we have a living hope, an eternal inheritance and a salvation that is not in full yet. So there's more to be revealed in the end. So salvation brings hope, a living hope. And in verses 6 through 9, we're going to see that salvation brings joy even in our suffering. Take a look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we reflect on what God has done for us, we become with joy. In this you rejoice. Because of this future hope, right now, in this moment of suffering, we can rejoice. Looking towards the future, rooted in what Christ has done in the past, provides joy in the present. So Christians who suffer today must look beyond the trials and remember what God has done for them and the amazing hope that he's promised this will bring joy in the midst of our suffering. We see this all throughout the New Testament, joy in suffering. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
1 Thessalonians 1, 6, For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then James chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We don't rejoice because of our suffering, but we rejoice in our God and the living hope that we have in him. But Peter understands that while we have joy and while we can have joy in our suffering, that suffering is still painful. There is this human element to it. He writes, you have been grieved by various trials. Grief doesn't mean just a little sadness. Grief means deep sorrow. There's probably some of you here today who are, you could probably just describe yourselves that way, right? You're in deep sorrow. You're grieved by the trial. These various trials that the believers were going through brought about grief. And don't let anyone tell you that Christians aren't allowed to be sad. We are. We grieve, but we grieve with hope, a living hope. We can smile as we cry. I saw this in Pastor Scott when his father passed away. Both joy and grief. And as we live in this hostile world as exiles, we're going to face various trials. Identifying with Christ will bring about suffering in many different ways. Jesus says in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. As elect exiles in this hostile world, the world hates us. We live differently than the rest of society. Our world doesn't like the message that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Our culture considers the message that tells them that they are sinners in need of God's grace as hate speech and intolerance. Christians are labeled as judgmental, narrow-minded, and evil. We will face all sorts of trials and sufferings. But we rejoice because this suffering is only for a little while. See that in the text there? Our suffering is temporary. And while it may seem like that dark cloud has been over you forever, find encouragement and joy that in comparison to the future glory that awaits you, these moments will only seem like a little while. And then in verse 6, Peter says, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. If necessary, 
Peter's trying to get his readers to understand that there is a purpose behind the various trials they are experiencing. Suffering doesn't happen by accident. In fact, it is designed by God to accomplish his purposes in us. Trials are necessary. The suffering and trials that come our way have a purpose. And that purpose is to refine us. In verse 7, Peter writes, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, When a goldsmith puts gold into a fire, he doesn't do it to destroy the gold. In fact, it won't hurt the gold, but it will remove impurities. And so Peter is saying, just like that goldsmith, God allows the fire of affliction to come upon us, but not to destroy us, but to remove the impurities of sin to remove the doubts and the fears and to deepen and strengthen our faith. We are strengthened through the very sufferings we endure. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Suffering in this life is not because of punishment, but because God is teaching us. And it's proof of his love for us. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. The sovereign will of God is over all the sufferings we face. Trials are necessary because we're a work in progress. Sin still remains. We often put our trust and our hope in worldly things. We go about our lives as if this world is all that matters. And so God allows trials to help us get rid of false hopes and leave us with a trust in him alone. And they test the genuineness of our faith, the authenticity And Peter says, authentic faith is more precious than gold. Have you been through one of these refining moments? For those who have, isn't it amazing how you can actually look back at one of those moments and actually be thankful for it? While you were in that trial, it felt like you could hardly breathe. But after it, after God had worked his purpose in your life, you see at least in part why you had to go through that. And as more trials have come your way, you walk into them with a deeper faith, with a joy that the world does not know. There's a reason for our suffering. Paul writes in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering is a part of God's plan for our lives. To help us endure this life, to produce godly character, and to give us hope. Hope that is trustworthy and reliable. And this is why we rejoice in our sufferings. But if we're honest, we don't often view trials this way. We don't see them as necessary. We don't have joy. We sometimes are bitter and angry at God for allowing things to come into our lives. And so instead of considering the living hope and eternal inheritance that we have, instead of seeking after God in our trials, we try to alleviate the pain in our own ways in unhealthy ways, possibly through binge-watching TV shows, through overeating. We take out our problems on our loved ones. We resort to things that will temporarily remove the pain, but won't ultimately. This should cause us to repent. These things will never help us. They'll only crush us. But God is telling you to remember his great mercy, to look to the living hope that you have in Christ and to see that your trials have a purpose. These various trials are the means in which God preserves us, but also assures us. When we endure a difficult time of suffering, we see that our faith is real and others around us can see that authentic faith, the mark of a genuine, spiritual, mature Christian is the ability to suffer well. When we get to that point in which we cling to Christ because he is the only one who can get us through whatever we're going through, we come to see that he is all we really need. And this brings us to rejoice. When our faith proves to be real, we will receive praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. That's what the text says. I don't know what that means, but how encouraging is that? Jesus is coming back for his people, and when he does, we will receive praise and honor and glory for our faith. I, but I'm assuming that we're going to just give it all right back to him, though. But how amazing is that? How encouraging is that to those of you who are suffering? He's coming back, and we're going to see him. But right now, we don't. Take a look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Here Peter reflects on the love that his readers have for Jesus, a love that makes them ready to suffer 
Peter had seen Jesus. I'm sure as he was composing this letter, thoughts of his Lord came to his mind, remembering those sweet moments with him. But the Christians in Asia Minor had not seen him. And this is a great reminder that we are not at a disadvantage because we don't see Jesus face to face. In fact, all the disciples saw Jesus face to face and did many foolish things. It was not Peter's sight of Jesus, but rather his faith in who Jesus was that mattered. And the same goes for us. These elect exiles loved Jesus even though they did not see him. This is evidence of saving faith that you love Jesus, that you believe in him. Where is true joy found? In Jesus. And because he preserves us in our trials, we love him more and more, and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. And although our trials give us temporarily grief, temporary grief, nothing can take away the deep joy that is anchored in our hope in Jesus. And although we have the assurance of eternal salvation now, we will receive the goal of our faith, full salvation, when we see Jesus face to face. Salvation brings us hope. It brings us joy in the various trials that we face knowing that they're only for a while and are necessary. And also salvation brings us privilege. Take a look at verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter now reminds his readers that salvation, the salvation that they've received is the same message of grace that was foretold by the prophets. It's still relevant. It was still relevant for these elect exiles, and it's still relevant for us today. Peter wants to increase our appreciation for the great salvation that we have in Christ. Salvation is a gift of God. It's not something that you can earn. Some people think that if you do good, you'll get God's attention and then he'll give you a pass. Others think that being involved in religious activities will cause God to overlook your shortcomings and, and sins. Some people think that because they don't smoke or drink or sleep around, then they're off the hook. Many people try to pretend that everything's all right with them, but none of these things can save you. It's only by God's great mercy that we can have any hope of salvation. 
It's only through God's electing love that his mercy can be received. And it's only through the death and resurrection of Jesus that salvation is actually possible. There's no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. And so if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus, I'm going to give you the bad news. You have no hope in this world or in the world to come. God's word says that those who have not received Jesus by faith are dead in their sins and will be punished for their sins at the end of time. But there is good news. Really, really, really good news. God has made a way by punishing his own son in the place of those who believe. You can leave here this morning with living hope. You can leave here this morning with true joy. You can experience new life because there is forgiveness of your sins in Jesus. And so if you turn from your sins and you believe in him, you will be saved. That's what this says. If you turn from your sins and believe in Jesus, you can be saved. That will alter your life for eternity. But as I've mentioned, this is good news. It doesn't mean that you're going to have an easy life. In fact, trusting in Jesus will cost you a lot. But whatever you lose here on this earth, whatever suffering you face will pale in comparison to the joy that you'll experience in knowing Jesus. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. We don't deserve his forgiveness, but he freely gives it to those who receive him by faith. Salvation is a gift of God. And this is the message that the prophets prophesied long ago. They didn't know it in full, though. And that's why salvation brings us privilege. In verses 10 through 12, Peter is informing believers that they are heirs to the full message of the prophets. This truth should blow your minds. Ready? The least disciple of Jesus Christ is in a better position to understand the Old Testament revelation, what the prophets prophesied, than the greatest prophet. Isaiah? What? We are privileged because we can see all the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus. The Old Testament predicted the suffering of the Messiah, the servant of the Lord. The prophets announced that the animal sacrifices could not make a final atonement for sins. The blood of the Lamb of God had to be shed. The Spirit of God proclaimed through the prophets that Jesus would suffer 
and then glory would follow. Jesus would suffer and then glory would follow. And so the pattern that we see in the life of Jesus is the pattern for our lives. That's what Peter is telling us here. Suffering, then glory. We will suffer for a little while. Then glory will follow. Our suffering is not a sign that Christ has betrayed you. Our suffering is a sign of fellowship with our resurrected Lord who first suffered for us. We have a living hope in Jesus Christ. The scattered Christians that Peter was writing to felt beat up by the sufferings. And so Peter reminded them of the fact that God raised up the prophets and the apostles in order to serve them. They have spoken and they have written for our sake, pointing us to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and accomplishes a work of grace that is so glorious, a work of grace that is so glorious that the angels in heaven long to look That is how glorious this work of grace and mercy is. And so whatever trials you are going through, whatever grief you are experiencing, whatever suffering is ahead, keep trusting in Christ. Keep loving Jesus. Remember that you have been born again into a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Remember the internal inheritance that is being kept for you by God. Consider how God has guarded your faith through many trials up until this point and promises to preserve you till the end. And know that he's using those trials to refine you. It's not out of punishment. It's out of love. As the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Our current sufferings, no matter how awful they are, no matter how long they last, are no match to the glory and amazing full salvation we will experience when Christ comes. Our living hope rooted in the resurrection of Christ brings joy in the midst of trials. Let's pray. Father, we praise your name. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For you are the one who chose us from the beginning. And because of your great mercy, you have caused us to be born again to our living hope. We thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, we are given so many promises and privileges in the gospel, and yet we often neglect them. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. When trials come our way, we often resort to sin. 
Help us to rejoice in our trials, to remember the hope that we have in Jesus. Lord, we are thankful that you will preserve our faith by your power so that we will enjoy the inheritance that you've promised us. Help us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. In his name we pray, amen.